There are stories that are true, but they are the records of history, and as such can be dry and boring. There are stories that sound brilliant, but may not always necessarily be historically true. And there are stories where we're unsure. They may be, they may not be. We have no firm evidence that they happened. But they are fascinating, and I think deserve to be told. This is one of those stories. And it is about a moment that supposedly took place in London many centuries ago. On the streets of the city one winter day, riding along came two men on horseback, escorted by a small body of armed men. One of the two men was Henry II, King of England and Lord of the vast Angevin Empire that dominated the west of France. The other man was his Chancellor, Thomas Becket. As they rode, the tale goes, they spied a shivering beggar on the road from Ludgate to the Tower, we imagine. So in my head, the King and Chancellor were riding along Westcheap or Poultry. The story goes that the King glanced at the beggar and then said, Do you see him? Yes, I do, Majesty, replied his Chancellor. King Henry asked, how poor he is, how frail and thinly clad. Wouldn't it be a great act of charity to give him a thick, warm cloak? Thomas Becket seemed taken aback and was quick to praise the idea, saying it would indeed and it behooves you as a king to think and act so. The beggar stepped forward and the king asked him, if he would like a brand new cloak to keep him warm on this cold day. The beggar, not recognising exactly who was talking to him, thought this was a cruel joke, and said so. The king assured him he was in earnest, and then suddenly turned to Becket and said, This great deed of charity shall be yours. The king grabbed the brand new scarlet cloak lined with grey fur the Chancellor was wearing and tried to pull it off him. Becket responded as anyone would. He was surprised, shocked and initially angry. The King tried to pull it off him and Becket refused and resisted, grabbing it also. A moment followed. The King and his Chancellor engaged in an unseemly tug of war for the expensive garment in full view of everyone. They made eye contact and pulled hard, both Chancellor and King almost falling off their horses, and it was so extreme that the royal bodyguards moved to intervene, but Henry ordered them off. He didn't need his bodyguards. His Chancellor would give him the cloak, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he? The scene became increasingly ugly until Becket, in the words of one historian, being quote, visibly peaked, unquote, relented, and the king handed the garment over to the beggar and explained what happened to all the bodyguards and onlookers and everyone, and everyone, including those noble bodyguards, laughed and laughed and made jokes and offered the chancellor their own cloaks. Some see this anecdotal story 
as an example of the playfulness and manly humour that typified the friendship between the King and Thomas Beckett. I personally think those who see it like that should stop huffing glue, because no amount of post-medieval romanticism can disguise what just happened, and indeed, what just happened was something that would happen time and time again. King Henry II would do things like this, to remind Becket where he came from. See, Henry, he was a king of the line of William of Normandy and of the line of Alfred the Great, and no doubt had distant Merovingian blood in his veins. He was sanctified by God. And those who protected him, they were nobles also, and Thomas wasn't. He was just a London boy. A London boy made good. He wasn't one of them. Countless times ahead, especially when their relationship soured, the king and the king's supporters would remind him of this fact. Are you not the son of one of my villiers? The king would say time and again. And time and again, Thomas would find his humble origins come back and haunt him and be used against him. And it would be easy to suggest that Thomas of London was a scion of a middle-class London background and that his upbringing in a meritocratic money pit that was the city at the time had shaped him and made him a natural rebel in such a society, but that would be too simplistic a reading of things. Rather, the story of Thomas Becket, behind its wider themes of power of the state versus power of the church and its complex personal relationship between the two men illustrates perfectly the role London played in enabling and empowering its sons to suddenly find themselves in positions of staggering power and how dangerous was the murky waters of the newly formed relationship between the city what Fitzstephen's called the seat of monarchs but not capital and the kings of England men of capricious and treacherous natures whose only limit upon them was their own egos. In this view, then, that story of Henry and Thomas on the cold streets of London fighting over the cloak becomes a perfect metaphor. And Thomas becomes the embodiment of the city in that time. It may be beside the king, it may be dressed in fine splendour, it may seem a second only to the power sovereign itself. But always, always, it should know its place, know its role, or else. Hi, my name is Saul and you are listening to The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the tale of this mighty city from the point of view of residents at the time. We are currently stuck in the early part of the reign of Henry II, a complicated era where the role of the city was being codified and changing, and we finally have come to the life story of a man who I honestly believe not only gives us powerful insights into the personality of this king, but the nature of politics, the issues facing the nation, and much more. This then is the story of Thomas Becket, the 12th century city's most famous son, and how it helps to define the story of the city going forward. Welcome then to the tale of Thomas of London, part one, The City Boy Made Good. 
So now we must consider the story of Thomas Becket. Shall I do this Nicholas Nickleby-like, and tell of his youth and life and of the events unfolding? I, I could. But to do that justice would indeed take many hours, and would also take us away from the true star of my narrative, which is the city into which he was born. So what follows is a selective rendering of details I believe are important, and if his tale piques your interest, may I suggest one takes the time to indulge yourself into this man's history and life. His tale, complete, is fascinating. Thus we need only understand the rough overview of the man's life to begin with, just to get the shape of the events which were to denote his story, and from that build a scaffold upon which we can construct a greater framework to highlight important details which we can examine as we go along. So who was Thomas Beckett, and why is he so important? He was born sometime in and around 1119 in London, supposedly on the corner of West Seep and Ironmongers Row, today's Cheapside. The son of Norman parents and a father who had began life as a cloth merchant but had become a landlord and property magnate, Thomas had grown up in London. Experiencing the background details of upbringing, I spent all of last chapter examining the account given by his biographer, William Fitzstevens. He attended a grammar school over in Merton Priory to the southwest of London for a few years before he returned to London and we think attended a school for boys somewhere nearby, just a short walk from his home. His education, while exceptional by the standards of the inhabitants at the time, was basic in terms of academia and so he was sent to Paris to study canon or civil law. During these years, his father's fortunes had been seriously impacted by the destruction of his property portfolio caused by the Pentecost fire, which had destroyed vast swathes of London and may well have forced Thomas's father to borrow money from the likes of Gervais of Cornhill. When Thomas returned from Paris, he had to gain employment and his father was able to see him find a job working for the Sheriff of London, Osbert Houtiniers, a.k.a. Osbert Eightpence, and Thomas became a clerk for the Sheriff of London, learning the practicalities of civil administration, working for the man charged with the gathering of taxes for the Crown from the largest city in the nation. It was in this job that Thomas came to the attention of his great patron, Theobald of Beck, the wily Archbishop of Canterbury, who held the seat during the difficult and problematic era of the anarchy, which we covered between chapters 62 and 66 of the Story of London. Here, under his service, Thomas grew in importance and stature, soon catching the Archbishop's eye with his competency and skill, and he was sent to France and Italy to specialise in canon law, and eventually Thomas became Archdeacon of Canterbury, second only to Theobald, his civilian administrator of the great archdiocese itself. By 1155, so aged about 35 or 36, this high-profile position brought him to the attention of the new King of England, the younger Henry II. Archbishop Theobald recommended Thomas for the vacant position of Chancellor of England, and for seven or so years he served the king as his fix-it man, collecting revenues, joining him on military campaigns, and becoming, at least to all the world, one of the king's closest advisers and friends. So great was his status that the king sent his son and heir, Prince Henry, to grow up in Thomas's household, a rare honour. 
Around 1162, Theobald, Archbishop of Canterbury, died, and Thomas became nominated and then made Archbishop of Canterbury, and almost immediately he and the king's relationship transformed. As the secular chancellor, Becket had lived a rich and opulent life, and the king assumed his loyalty would be to his patron, him as king of the land. What he failed to guess was that Thomas was seemingly driven by a deep faith and placed his duty to the church as primary. Their relationship quickly soured, and in 1164 at Clarendon Palace, when King Henry introduced the 16-point constitutional reform that would have limited and weakened the power of the church, Becket refused to validate it, leading to a showdown at Northampton Castle that November, where Becket was tried before a kangaroo court organised by the king and convicted of malfeasance and corruption. Becket dramatically stormed out of the proceedings and fled into exile, where he was to remain until 1170. During that period, he and Henry both tried to engage the Pope at the time, Alexander II, with the righteousness of their cause, and a long and protracted political war was fought between the two men, which happened during an era of conflict between the Pope and the Holy Roman Empire. The result was six years of bitter insults, fraught negotiations, slights both imagined and real, and Becket being the one man in the whole of his kingdom, if not the whole of Europe, who would not bend to the king's will, earning him extraordinary contempt and anger. Finally, after a half-decade's worth of back-and-forthing, the Pope negotiated a reconciliation between the two men, and in 1170, Thomas returned to England. And yet many issues remained, including Thomas's problematic relationship with the clerics who had opposed him and supported the king during his long and difficult exile, one of whom was the new Bishop of London. Before the year ended, the issue of the coronation of Prince Henry as heir, done without the Archbishop of Canterbury, came up, and Thomas excommunicated three priests, including the Bishop of London, for their part in this ceremony. The result was Henry exploding in fury and anger, and saying the words that led to four minor knights from the West Country to travel to Canterbury, and brutally murder Becket there in December that year. The result was that he was venerated as a Christian martyr, and then, just over two years after his murder, he was proclaimed a saint. King Henry realised just how dangerous the cult of Thomas was to him, so embraced it, going through great rituals of public contrition, and moving on to now try and deal with the myriad issues caused by the death of his son, Prince Henry, and that is simply that. That is the story, and now you know it. So, with that done... What moments from his life stand out and can help us grasp more about London, our city, and its impact upon him, and vice versa? The first, most obvious, is in his forming, Thomas Beckett's childhood and youth and formative years. In this, we turn at first to details biographical to fill in some extra colour. By all accounts, he was close to his mother, the matronly Sabine he would hold up an example for how London women should act, and he grew up in a household filled with women. Thomas had three sisters, Agnes, Rose and Mary, the youngest of whom became a nun, and eventually, after his death, the abbess of an abbey in Barking. Rose and Agnes married. Agnes would have a son called Theobald, who would inherit the Becket home on Cheapside and his descendants, about a century from now, will grant the family home to the Crusader Knightly Order of St. Thomas of Acre, and the home would become their London headquarters. Aged 10, Thomas Beckett had went off to Merton Priory for a couple of years. It had been 15 miles away, so it was probably a bit too far to commute, and so boarded there. 
before returning to attend one of London's grammar schools, something his biographer Fitzstevens may have done as well. And the nearest three of these grammar schools to him at this time was the one attached to St Paul's Cathedral, but then there was also one attached to St Mary Le Grand, and the closest of all was the grammar school of St Mary Le Beau. Thomas grew up handsome and tall, eventually he would make over six feet, and possessed a good memory. He remained in London, or with a family friend, the brother of a man who had clung to the spur of wood of the white ship disaster, which we covered back in chapter 59. But then the anarchy broke out, and as such, aged 19, he was sent to Paris to study at the most prestigious university in the world before returning. He stayed only a few years. When he was 21, his mother died, and Thomas came home early, and then he spent a year somewhat adrift before joining the service of Osbert Eightpence, Sheriff of London. Osbert represents a manifestation of the money pit of London, something we examined a couple of chapters ago. But he was not some merchant made good, but he was a banker made good. And while his term of office formally ended just before Beckett joined his staff, as we showed a couple of chapters ago, the money pit was a murky world of side deals and unspoken endless loans and contracts. And there is no way Beckett would not have been part of this world, joining just after the time of Matilda's failed taking of the city and of London's great defiance. Thomas witnessed the events of the anarchy from the safety of London. He saw the privations and horrendous scorched earth campaigns, a war not just of battles but of sieges and raids of famine and starvation, and of a land falling apart. I described in detail how London avoided the worst of this, but this allows us to get to taste what was going on around him in the years before he decided to join the service of the Archbishop Theobald. So from this, what did Thomas learn? What do I believe he gained from these formative years? I think three things would have been impressed upon him from the city of his birth. The first is devotion unto God. It was all the way back in chapter 21 that I first covered the deeply passionate Christianity that London and Londoners seemed to hold, a passionate Christianity that was to manifest itself in the recent ecstatic impact of the miracle factory that was St. Bart's Church up in Smithfield. London was a city of an intensely passionate faith, strongly helped and deeply shaping well, everyone at the time were Christians, and everyone at the time was a Christian to a level of ferocity that we modern citizens of the world would have, have difficulty coming to terms with. There was something extraordinary about the faith of Londoners, it seemed. The sheer number of churches, the sheer ingrained relationship to be found in a city where the only noble resident for centuries was its bishop, and where its bishops were for the longest time the symbol of the city and its populace and more, yes, for me, this says that Thomas Beckett never converted to a deeper faith within him as life went on. It was always there, latent and explosive, born out of a childhood of faithful devotion spawned from this city of God. The second thing he inherited from London, I believe, would have been London's attitude towards rights. We've seen this in the many issues which have come up since chapter 56. The basic rule of if something is done once it will be done again and once done again it is tradition and once a tradition it remains. If you think about it this 
focus on the traditions and ancient rites of the city makes a lot of sense considering that London was just the city. London was not a despot. While its armed forces had at times been ferocious indeed, it never conquered anything or was able to impose its will on anything. Anything granted to London had had to survive endless invasions and a succession of unstable regime changes for over a century by now. London had one power, tradition. It fought for its traditions and could be bribed by offering and holding out or saying you're going to protect its traditions. Ultimately, all King Henry I or King Stephen had ever done really was enshrine those traditions or on occasion expand them, the commune status given by Stephen. And it wasn't just an adoration of traditional rights that London showed to the rest of the world. Within the city politics, it was the single most important guiding principle. Had we not seen the long-ranging port-soaken legal case, or the sheer escalation of the row over the rights to build fish weirs on the River Thames, I covered back in chapter 53, or the centuries worth of legal action caused by the Templars building a water gate on the River Fleet, which started back in chapter 67. For London and Londoners involved in any way with the running of the city, keenly then would be felt the maxim, that which was, must be maintained. A natural conservatism felt by those at the time most keenly. And again, while London was not unique in this at this time, far from it, its history shows that any from the city would have had this lesson deeply impressed upon them. And the third aspect of this era in London would have been a simple reality Thomas himself experienced. The citizens of London were not nobles. Oligarchs, some of them, yes, rich men and rich households, definitely, privileged, totally, but not nobles. Collectively, in terms of power and wealth, well, as was said by the gathering of the great and good in Winchester to settle the anarchy, they were almost nobles. And this could work. Londoners could marry their daughters to rich nobles, their wealthy dowries allowing legitimacy and entry into this world, and it could be easy for a Londoner to follow the footsteps of foreigners like William Cade and find themselves rubbing shoulders with the great and the good and the powerful of the realm and think they're equals in some way. But they never were. Not really. Sure, this would probably never come up unless one of them was to enter the highest reaches of that world, the mountaintops of power. And then... Then their status as almost nobles would no longer apply. They would be low-born men in a high-born world. And thus Thomas will, in his future, find himself very isolated. What then of the era when he served the Archbishop of Canterbury? How he sought out this post is a matter of some debate, but the version I like out of the many offered was that he was recruited by a man within the Archbishop's staff, a man called Belehashi which supposedly means the clerk with the hatchet, or the hatchet man. Belahashi was supposedly a low-born man who recruited Thomas into the Chancellor's staff, and Thomas himself seems to have leapt at the chance, as after all, this was a chance to work for one of the nation's true powers, was it not? Archbishop Theobald had been elected as Archbishop of Canterbury back in 1139, 
and he was the third in a trio of post holders who had risen to this post after having come up in the in the Norman monastery of Beck, the other two being the spiritual and political giants of their time, Lanfranc and St. Anselm. Theobald took the title in the midst of the anarchy and then declared himself neutral in the struggle and honest broker to both sides. It was this man that Thomas became one of a dozen clerks of a post, which saw, well, Thomas had to be tonsured, which is the shaving of the upper part of his head, to donate his status. But, crucially, he was a clerk, and like all the other clerks, he did not have to be ordained as a priest, and he wasn't. He would have been a subdeacon at the highest rank, a secular clerk who looked like a priest but wasn't. But it was in this part of his life that Thomas found himself working for one neutral man in an otherwise chaotic world. And here it became quickly clear that Thomas became Theobald's favourite. Over the next near decade in his service, Thomas found himself in the heart of the political struggles that shaped the latter part of the anarchy. Thomas was sent to gain a crash course in advanced legal skills in Bologna and Italy and in France in order to serve his new master better. But by 1147, he was probably travelling with the Archbishop to Paris to meet Pope Eugenius III as he toured the region, preaching the virtues of the Second Crusade. And it was by 1149 that because of his position as clerk to the Archbishop of Canterbury, that when King Stephen's relationship with the church went off the rails, as I covered back in chapter 66, Becket was at ground zero for much of that. When Theobald escaped England in 1149, he took with him only a small party of trusted advisers, Becket amongst them, and he was able to attend meetings where the Pope and Archbishop presided over rulings the King of England was forced to accept, and led to a powerful moment where... Eugenius III decided to excommunicate King Stephen and where Theobald had personally intervened and asked the Pope for mercy. The Archbishop here was playing both the long game, now appearing to be Stephen's saviour, but also knowing that for all the Church's power, he himself probably did not have enough influence to enforce that excommunication upon England. And this Thomas all witnessed. When Theobald returned, this act gained him no favour from King Stephen, and the king sent a man who was to be a significant part of Thomas Becket's life, an individual called Richard de Lacy, to gain the archbishop's submission to the power of the kingdom. When Theobald refused, he was deported to Flanders, and England was placed under interdiction. The punishment where it's almost an excommunication, it simply was the land was forbidden for priests to enact any of the Christian rites and rituals that helped society function. I wonder how Thomas would have felt when he heard that the Diocese of London was the first to resist the interdiction. Disappointed or understanding that the power of the church lay not in the rulings they made, but in the personal skills of the prelate who was trying to implement them. The most important moment in Theobald's service was the event where he sent Thomas to gain the papal decree banning Prince Eustace from being crowned without reconciliation between King Stephen and the Church. Many later said it was Becket who arranged this, but I personally think this was projecting his later influence and power upon the clerk at the time. Whatever the case, it was Becket who gained the decree forbidding the coronation of Prince Eustace as heir. And at the gathering of the royal court in Westminster in 1152, when the Church announced this ban, Becket may have been present when the king and his heir gathered and jailed the bishops and stuck them in a single house, and it appeared that a bloody putsch was about to happen. Theobald had jumped into a boat and set sail down the Thames for dear life, with the king's men screening after him, according to one story. 
with many believing Beckett was at his side. Later, when Stephen reconciled with the church, accepting defeat in the matter, Beckett's position as the right-hand man of the stalwart archbishop was seen by all. So what did Thomas learn from this time? Well, he gained an example to emulate. Theobald resisting tyrant Stephen was to provide Beckett with a salutary lesson in real politique. While the church had no secular armies, it retained a powerful separate weapon, a hegemonic power unlike anything else seen at the time. It did have the power to defy kings, and yet this power was in its principle. The practicality of it all was that its power would depend upon the prelate's skill in politics. Theobald's tactics had been simple. Remain the neutral party during the anarchy between the two sides. It's only when Stephen began to turn on the church, he found himself in conflict with the King of England. And here Becket saw the Archbishop of Canterbury utilise the international aspect of the church power to outflank the King of England. Here, Thomas saw the battles he would see repeated in the years to come in England. And here, gentle listener, we can see that these battles were to be repeated in the years to come in England and reflect how often English kings desire to prevent this European influence upon their nation. Please allow me to add an important caveat. At this time, these English kings were about as English as your average citizen of Italy. None spoke the language, and the geopolitical centre of the kingdom was always Normandy. But in principle, the issues raised between Stephen and Theobald were in fact timeless issues. We see repeated today the desire for the sovereign power in England to rule itself without recourse to European-based powers. And, oh look, doesn't that sound reminiscent of something? But from this time besides Theobald of Canterbury, Thomas saw up close and personal that in attempting to gain victory in such a debate, the sovereign power of England could and would become draconian and tyrannical. And he learned that it would need to be the Holy Mother Church that could prevent such excesses from running rampant across the nation. Was his view correct, by the way? It does not actually matter. It was the way he saw it, and clearly the lesson he learned. And so we have seen the things that shaped this man and built him up for his rewards. Thomas gained rewards quickly. The revenues generated at St. Mary Le Strand, just outside of London, were granted to him, and he became a prebendary of St. Paul's. When Henry of Anjou and King Stephen had finally agreed to sit down to talks, it was Archbishop Theobald who emerged as the kingmaker of the realm, as it was he who decided that Henry should become king. And a highly fraught few months of intense political negotiations followed, with Becket forever at the archbishop's side, the aging archbishop calling him, quote, my first and only counsellor, unquote. And when the large and grand gestures denote the end of the anarchy had taken place to cheering crowds as the royal procession of the two kings made its way through the streets of London, and the final treaty solving all the small print were decided by the great and the good, Becket had, in his service to Theobald de Cantory, been at the right hand of it all. And while his name is not included in the list of witnesses of the Treaty of Westminster, which ended the conflict, and given that no one below the rank of prior or bishop was included in the witness list, it's not a surprise his name isn't there, Thomas of London was no doubt seen 
as one of the architects of the great peace. As the fixer and right-hand man of the Archbishop, it could be felt by some that the new Angevin king owed his throne, at least in part, to this clerk from London. Certainly Thomas's profile rose because of this. He became Archdeacon of Canterbury, rising in ranks to become a deacon formally and seemed to have a life set for him of wealth and reward in service to the Archdiocese had not events taken a dramatic turn. In October 1154, a mere ten months after the Treaty of Westminster had been signed, King Stephen had suffered a violent cramp and pain in his lower abdomen, had taken to bed, and died a few hours later of a most bloody explosive diarrhoea. Archbishop Theobald assumed the regency of the realm and oversaw the first smooth transition of the position of King of England in a long, long time. The new king was a youthful and eager 21 years old, and the archbishop's right-hand man, our Thomas of London, was now 34, and this new king was about to change the course of Thomas's life by making him Chancellor of England. Why? This is the question that has vexed many a historian and has produced some really interesting opinions. Due to the parameters of time, I can but only mention that many such theories exist and then focus solely upon the ones I find reason with. In the first part, I think the young king, king needed an England expert to help him run the nation he had just inherited. Henry was no stranger to England, as we described in previous chapters. He'd been making irregular journeys here since he was a small boy, but he needed someone who knew the people and knew the land better than him. But the real reason and the real hand behind why Thomas got the job was the kingmaker Theobald of Canterbury. The Archbishop probably pushed Thomas to this position. And why? Well, to quote one of the many contemporaries of the time, a man called Roger de Pontigny, quote, There was no little trepidation in the church, on, on the one hand because of the worrying youth of the king, but on the other because of the well-known antipathy of his courtiers towards the church's right to liberty. The Archbishop of Canterbury then, as troubled by the present as he was fearful of the future, planned to raise some defence against the evil he thought was imminent, and it seemed to him that if he could introduce Thomas to the king's councils, he could provide calm and peace, unquote. For Theobald then, while the king was young and above all impressionable, he was surrounded by barons and magnates who had, for the last decade or so, made bloody war upon church lands and pillaged many an abbey and bishopric. These men might have been forgiven in the general peace, but for the archbishop, he felt they could not be trusted not to eventually wake up one morning and see abbeys and priories as piggy banks and not holy places. It was this fear that drove the old cleric to push his Mr. Fixit to the king's attention. Had Thomas any qualifications for this role? Not really. He'd shown himself to be above-average administrator and clerk. He was a decent diplomat, and he was loyal and true to his archbishop. But then again, what qualifications could there be for this role? You either coped, or you didn't. The initial relationship, however, was explosively good. King and Chancellor, older man and younger king, Thomas and Henry, by all accounts, they became close. Reports suggest they chatted and joked, engaged in play fights, 
with the best of friends, and yet these tales seem like later projections placed upon the relationship to try and recast the story in light of what was to come. In truth, Thomas of London went from being the Archbishop of Canterbury's fixer to becoming the King's fixer. It wasn't just in England he did this. Henry ruled way more land south of the Channel than north of it, and Becket would spend as much time with his king in France as we see him north of the Channel. But he was constantly busy. In 1156, for example, he travelled with the king, his queen Eleanor, and their newborn daughter Matilda as far south as Limoges, before shuttling back and forth to England to hear legal cases and meet the envoys of the King of Norway and the ambassador of Frederick Barbarossa, the Holy Roman Emperor, and the embassy of the Moorish King of Valencia. And then two years later, Henry sent Thomas to negotiate a peace treaty with the King of France, and Thomas was supposedly meant to turn up to peace talks in Paris, reflecting the opulence and wealth of the man who ruled all from Northumbria to Gascony, and by all accounts, he wowed the Parisians with the grandeur of his procession. And his return from that, by the way, was his highest moment. And the combination of a willful king and skillful chancellor seemed to be able to overcome any issues the two men could face. Thomas of London changed the job of Chancellor, expanding the office, for example. Before 1154 or so, the Chancellors of England employed between two and four clerks uh, to aid them in his job. And then by the reign of King Stephen, the Chancellery, well, it rose to about 11 clerks. When it comes to Henry II's Chancellor, Thomas Becket, he poached the best scribes and created a corps of 52 men who would complete the paperwork of the office and by extension, intentionally or not, began the process of increasing the power of the office of the Chancellor. An example of this was something that could be seen just outside of London. During his tenure, Thomas oversaw the rebuilding of the Palace of Westminster, done in six weeks due to him employing literally an army of workers. But while formally it was done to impress the king and queen, it was here that a dedicated office space was created for the chancellery and its small army of scribes, possibly emulating the chancellor's conditions he'd seen back over in France. Of course, at the time, the more important office of the state was the Exchequer, run by two men old, Robert de Beaumont and Richard de Lacy, who remembered Thomas Savold as Theobald's lackey during the time de Lacy served Stephen, and the two men had history. But Thomas's Chancellor's influence in matters financial and legal expanded, not simply because of his ambition, but also the king's. Henry was seeking to emulate the French king's expansion into all areas of justice there, and he sought his chancellor to expand his influence and use the chancellery to facilitate this. There was, it must be said as always, a desire to impress and emulate the kings of France, and Henry II seems to have always had that desire. I mean, after all, he was married to the French king's ex-wife. As the French crown had sought to have a chancellor who expanded the powers of its mighty king, so Henry's chancellor would do the same, and Thomas reflected this, finding himself in greater glory also as the position changed. The French chancellors, for example, were expected to not only be men of administration, but also men of war if need be, and Thomas was to find himself joining his king on campaign. 
1157, Henry II declared war on Owain of Gwynedd, and Becket was an enthusiastic supporter. The war aims were simple, gather an army south of Chester, and then march along the coast, while a small fleet would sail alongside it up the coast of the Dee estuary, carrying provisions and supplies, and from there gain the subjugation of the North Welsh. The campaign was a disaster. Henry's fleet ambitiously went to raid Anglesey, and there ran into, well, Vikings. To be precise, the Norse diaspora of the Irish Sea. You may remember them. They dominated the story of London for quite a few chapters, and then round about William the Conqueror, I stopped talking about them. What? Do you think they went away? No. The Norse diaspora still maintained a strangled hold over the Irish Sea, and when Henry II sent his ships to Anglesey, they were no match for the diasporans' Viking longships. Henry's fleet was mauled and retreated, and then Henry himself was ambushed on the Pass of Coeshill. He managed to survive, and he began a policy of ordering his men to chop down forests, and he slowly tried to bring the Welsh to heel. But it was hard going, and eventually peace of a sort was declared, but this wasn't the only experience Thomas Beckett had of war, and a more important one, well, it took place a year later, when Thomas was following his king to Toulouse, far to the south of France, there to help the king enforce his wife's claim upon the city. Here the Chancellor of England had been given troops to command, but during the siege of Toulouse, a first recorded argument took place with the king and him. The king suggested caution during a siege, and Thomas, perhaps believing his success in matters non-military, had made him an expert on matters military, lambasted the idea and suggested that all that was lacking in the siege was the required aggression. But when it came to warfare, Thomas was in over his head. War was truly the realm of the noble class. And for his rather amateur advice and his clear overreach, the king had his chance to later be given military tasks that were somewhat of a poison chalice. More by luck and enthusiasm than any skill, Thomas Beckett acquitted himself quite bravely over the next year or so, and surprisingly did well and at least saved face. But the experiences of following Henry into battle had changed the relationship of the two men. There seemed to be less of a closeness between them. And yet, we must ask at this point, did the relationship actually changed. Were they ever that close? Was Thomas Beckett's mistimed advice in Toulouse the thing that caused the strain between Henry and Thomas to begin? Or was it always so strained? The incident I started this chapter with, where the finely dressed Chancellor had his expensive scarlet cloak torn off him by the willful king and handed to a beggar to the laughter of others, that incident took place in the aftermath of these French campaigns. Henry, to quote one historian, quote, had the confidence of a born aristocrat, the manners of a schoolyard bully, and the stomach of an ox, unquote. Thomas was entirely different. He was anxious and insecure by temperament, suffering from a weak digestion, and he was always devout. I mean, we know he employed two priests to whip his back, even when he was chancellor. Was he ever an equal and friend of the king, or was his position always there? This man at the right hand of the king himself, low-born and common 
He was Thomas of London, but what did that mean? The story told at the start of this chapter, I feel, sums it up best. It just meant that his position depended upon the king, a capricious and willful man. It was one where, upon the streets of the city he was born in, London itself, perhaps even close to where he was born, the Londoner was reminded that behind the fine robes, he was no better than that London beggar. That the final lesson of his upbringing was always to remember he would hold no power, no true power, unless it came from his king. But with all of that then, one has to ask, what then if a man like this did hold true power? What would happen then? And in that, we're going to have to find out in the next chapter. Thanks for listening. I really do hope you enjoyed it. Coming up, part two of the story of Thomas of London, the man of God, hopefully released within the next 24 to 48 hours. Thank you. Bye.